I think a very good one. I've scanned it, haven't had time to read it line by line yet, but looks very interesting. Uh, the Tragedy of American Compassion. The reason I recommend some of these is because I do not believe there's any of us in this room or anywhere in the churches in America, with maybe the rarest of exceptions, that really thoroughly appreciate the degree to which secular culture has influenced us and the way the evangelical churches influence secular culture and how that loop has closed and looped back like wheels within wheels. The reason I think this is important to understand some of these things is because it will help us recognize those nicely closed heresies when they lift their head in ecclesiastical clothing, when they come with a veneer of scripture but are still the same insidious untruths. If you know them, if you understand them in some measure, that can be very helpful in recognizing them. And then Barna has done some very interesting polling, which if you have a mind for that sort of stuff, uh, can give you some interesting insights in what Americans answer to questionnaires. And uh, uh, I'm not sure that that's something well, I'm sure it isn't something everybody would like, but there may be some of you that would be interested in that, and I recommend you at least consider it. Snuffle at the book table. That's one of the ways that churches climb out of the quagmire of perceptual mediocrity onto the rock of pizzazzy thinking. <laughs> Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come before you today, we pray for grace, abundant grace. We pray for grace to honor you in what we think. We pray for grace to understand what pleases you and to do what pleases you. We ask, Lord God, for the grace to be jealous for the church. And Father, we would dare to ask this morning that you will make the churches represented here lamps of purest gold, even as we petitioned you in song just moments ago. Please make us congregations, O oh God, that radiantly exhibit a reverential submission to your holy word, both corporately and individually amongst our members. Father, we ask that you will use this time to that high and holy end. Sanctify us so that we are not milk Christians, but meat Christians. We ask you, not for our sakes, but for your sake and your glory, to so work within us and to so apply your word and to so quicken us with your spirit and we will build with gold, silver, and precious stones on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And please, God, not wood, hay, and stubble. We desire, Lord, to be profitable for the sake of the kingdom and the honor of Jesus Christ. And yes, the honor of his body, the visible church. O God of hosts, Hear us then, we pray, because we do ask 
in the name of Jesus Christ, remembering afresh his promises to be in the midst of even two or three gathered together in his name and to answer when even two on earth agree together concerning anything they shall ask of the Father in heaven. Amen. This morning, I wish to begin by reading to you a passage that at first blush may appear to have little to do with what we're addressing, but I think it has a great deal to do with it. And that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul begins that great discourse concerning the charismata, the spirituals. And I'm reading from verse 1, 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spirituals, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I want to read verse 7 again. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Beloved, I submit that the problem that we face today with the emphasis on the individual at the expense of Christ and the kingdom is an old, old, old problem. I believe it reared its ugly head in the garden when Satan said to Eve, you shall be as gods, which was offering to her a wickedly deceitful and yet apparently enormously attractive temptation for a degree of exaltation or some other preeminence that she apparently believed she did not possess in the garden. And when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, that church that has at least on one occasion been called the Corinthian disaster or the Corinthian catastrophe, one of the problems he had to deal with was a movement within the congregation to gain notoriety by the exaltation of individual gifts. And in verse 7, Paul identifies two truths concerning 
the entire membership of the church. Everybody is given at least one gift. Everybody is given at least one gift. But the flip side of that coin is that in every instance, the manifestation of the Spirit and the Spirit's gift is for the common good. For the common good. You see that phrase? Do you see how other-directed that is? Isn't that interesting that something as intensely personal and something that recognizes the differences between individuals, Paul addresses those differences further on in just even that paragraph, nevertheless focuses on the purpose of the gifts without exception is for the common good. That is a theocentric, Christocentric purpose. It is for the building up of the body of Christ. And I believe when we forget that principle, we become more susceptible to the cults of individualism. And I remember the first time I ever read the Greek word idios, and it dawned on me that that what we translate as individual, that that's a profound, I believe, insight from ancient culture as to what a preeminent emphasis on the individual really is. And when you realize that in America, one of the great articles of American cultural faith is the idea of the rugged individual the self-made man, if ever there was a contradictory phrase invented by cliché thinkers, that certainly may take the cake for all time and eternity. But the fact is that we, I believe, none of us fully appreciate the pernicious influence that uncritically accepted, most of the time, uncritically accepted notion of individualism, independence, and self has affected the churches. For instance, I have heard many a Christian parent say without so much as a flicker of embarrassment, well, I am training my children to be independent. Really? Really? Do you really want your children to grow up to be independent? Do you realize what that means? That means in part holding to a philosophy that supposes they can function without help from others or constraints levied against them by others. Do you want to foster that most foolish of all idiotic blind religions that we really can be an island unto ourselves? I submit you can't show anywhere in Scripture that God calls us to be independent. 
I submit he calls us to be responsible. He calls us to be interdependent. He calls us to be stewards of what we have for the benefit of others. And he calls us to acknowledge our dependency upon God. And that's an extreme case when Christ says in John 15, 5, without me you can do nothing. And that's a great anthropological truth. And so as we go into this subject this morning of biblical anthropology, I want to raise just an honest flag and saying we're treading in real touchy ground. And I believe our churches have a great deal of this. Don't tell me what to think. I have my opinion and you have yours. And don't make me change my thinking. And I believe that we have within the churches, God have mercy on us, those who at the drop of a hat without any support from Scripture, will not even blush to challenge a preacher who's done his exegetical homework. They don't happen to like a particular doctrine. Now let's get closer to home. You know, sin and temptation can come in all kinds of subtle dress. And I want you to think for just a moment because we're going to enter into something that's tough. And I'm trying to be honest with you in the love of Christ. Is it true or is it not true in America that right now one of the uncritically accepted articles of civic religion is that we should be positive? True or false? And if a person is negative, well, I mean, that's like calling him a bigot or a pervert or something. Well, on the other hand, perverts today aren't, it's no longer a pejorative term. <laughs> we'll have to change that. It used to be. But it's like calling them a bigot. That's a terrible term. Or narrow-minded. That's another terrible term. And I would ask you today, as we think about this, what does the word positive mean anyway? I mean, what do we mean when we say, well, you know, he's, he should be more positive, or he's too negative. That's the flip side of the positive. Thing. What do we mean by that anyway? Anybody want to take a stab? What do you think? So positive, you would say, in the American genre means uh, to be uh, ready to recognize your own capabilities. I suspect that's probably an element. Any other ideas? Cam? Optimism. Optimism. Uh, I believe everything's going to be wonderful. Telling us what we want to hear. Not bad. That's a pretty good idea, too. Ellery? I don't know if here it says that to be mistaken at the top of your voice. <laughs> 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 you all get that? <laughs> 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 
he's quoting, I think you said Pierce? Beer, thank you. I couldn't hear the name. To be mistaken at the top of your lungs. And I think there were a couple other hands. Yes. Ah. Yeah. Now I think, and not that these others were not very much part of it, but I believe one of the most common ones you could get people to agree on would be to ignore the negative. Tony. Upbeat. Yes. Maximize the positive, minimize the negative. One of those wonderful bird brain <laughs> cliches that we just love. Yes, you're right. I agree, Eileen. That's a common one. Yes, Betty. Whistling in, the dark. Whistling in the dark. That's probably an you know a way of, of expressing uh, optimism. Now, yes, Joe. Yes, cheer up, things get worse. So I cheered up, and sure enough, things got worse. Yes, yes, that's one of the clues that positivism may not be the be-all and the end-all of upbeat philosophy. Mrs. Tuggy. Maybe, well, uh, head in the sand or ignore the problem. Skip. I think that's the heart, isn't it? I really believe that's the heart of it, ignoring the curse. And if you believe that this morning, what then is the negative? The curse, isn't it? Anything that touches on the sin or the fall or the condition or the nature of man, that's being negative. And so as we begin to look at the anthropology of Scripture... I would like to propose to you that you better be willing if you're going to be anthropologically sound. And remember, anthropology just means the study of man. That's not a bad word. Like everything else, there's a godly anthropology and a very ungodly anthropology. And when you think of people like Mar Margaret Mead, you can be sure you're thinking of ungodly anthropology personified. But like it or not, we are forced then to come to grips with what is now socially unacceptable in America. Quoting here from Horton, I want to read just a little brief paragraph. Speaking of Schuller, the cardinal of the plexiglass cathedral... Schuller does not even blush when he charges that classical Reformed theology has erred in its insistence that theology be God-centered and not man-centered. It was appropriate for Luther and Calvin to think theocentrically, but now the scales must tip the other way. For this new reformation of self-esteem, sin is anything, quote, that strips one of God's children of his right to divine dignity, unquote. Sin, Schuller says, is any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. Before, of course, sin was robbing God of his due. 
against you and you only have I sinned, confessed the psalmist in Psalm 51. Further, salvation is not reconciliation with a God who has been offended by our rebellion, but now is self-esteem rising all around me and within me. I really feel good about myself. And in one other quote, he points out that he believes the wickedest thing that the churches have done is to preach about sin. So here we go, folks. Are you ready for a journey that isn't going to be liked by the multitudes? Are you willing to be different? Are you willing to stand for truth even if it doesn't titillate your jaded emotions? First principle, then, our view of man will always affect all other ideas about how to solve personal and corporate dilemmas. Our view of man, that is of the nature of man, will always, without exception, profoundly affect our ideas about how to solve personal and corporate dilemmas. I realized that I assumed something the other day with some feedback, to wit, that some people do not know what CCEF stands for. It does not stand for curmudgeons cogitating effectual fuddly thought. CCEF is the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. And I would be willing to propose that almost everything that we deal with in terms of trying to teach churches and elders and deacons and other interested folk in Bible-believing churches about how to solve the problems that professing Christians have goes back to bad thinking about the nature of man. I'm going to say there's some things that don't, but I think the vast majority does now. Sin and Andy have been much more involved with CCF than I have, and I certainly encourage a counter-opinion. But I think you can trace back almost every problem we get into sooner or later to evil thinking about the biblical truths of man, that is, to a rejection of those truths. And so I submit, then, there is a daisy chain that is deadly. If you have no sin, then you have no guilt, because guilt comes from sin and the commission thereof. If you have no guilt, then you have no accountability for sin. And if you have no accountability, then you have no judgment against sin. And if there's no judgment against sin, then there's no punishment. And if you have no punishment, then there's no need of hell. And if you have no hell, then there's no emphasis on repentance and forgiveness as being absolutely necessary. If you have no hell, then no Savior is necessary. And if no Savior is necessary, no faith is necessary. And if no faith is necessary, then no Bible is necessary. I hope something's sinking in. You can't separate these. It's zero mysterious why people who end up denying basic biblical teaching on the nature of man end up ultimately rejecting all of Scripture and descending into that algae-filled pond 
of syrupy humanism. So what is our heritage then that you and I must be jealous for, thank God for, never please God, never, 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 even if it costs us our life, give up? Truths that our ancestors fought to regain and to teach and to pass on to us. And the first of these, again, not in a sacred order, but I would offer to you, is that in the Reformation, it was recognized that man is not only sinful because of his behavior, but because of his fallen nature. There was a real Adam, a real garden, a real temptation, a real forbidden fruit, a real yielding to temptation, a real eating thereof, a real curse. Our ancestors who fought the good fight of faith in the Reformation were jealous for the proposition that man, well, indeed being made in the image of God as a result of Adam's fall, has an image that is marred. And all of Adam's descendants are naturally in a state of sin and misery, with, of course, only the exception of Jesus Christ, and are under God's righteous judgment and without true hope apart from God's forgiveness, mercy, grace, and adoption in Jesus Christ. I submit that our forebears in the Reformation believed in the concept of total depravity, to wit that the entire or total man is polluted by sin in all his parts, including his mind and his will. You believe that this morning as you sit here? You believe it? Do you believe that you and I cannot think a single thought that is absolutely untainted by sin? We cannot do that, even in our redeemed state. Our Reformation ancestors believe that all men are dead in trespasses and sin and as such are incapable of choosing good or God or salvation on their own, but must be quickened, that is, be made alive by the Holy Spirit before they can even exercise faith and repentance. Do you believe that? You ever heard people talk about their spiritual birthday? You realize that what most people talk about being their spiritual birthday is really the time they recognize they came to saving faith and repentance or what we might call conversion. But if you get careful with Scripture, their birthday was when they had the new birth and they were brought into being, they were made alive by the work of the Spirit because you and I cannot believe, we cannot exercise saving faith, we cannot repent until we've been quickened. You can't do it. And I am persuaded that even in evangelical churches that kind of warm, well-intentioned and certainly not malicious muddlement is but one of countless litmus clues of our weakened theological state. I believe that our Reformation fathers had a much clearer understanding of the grace of God as necessary in sanctification, that sanctification is a product of grace and not of technique, and so that even after salvation we must employ the means of grace in order to grow in grace. 
Further, I submit that our forefathers believed that so serious is man's fallen condition that we have an enormous potential to deceive ourselves even after being saved. Even after being saved. Last night in his sermon, Tony pointed out the tragedy of David's family life. I offer you an impeccable evidence of the self-deception exercised on a man after God's own heart. Give or take a few weeks, David was approximately nine months blithely insensitive to a sin of adultery, murder, deception, dissimulation, until Nathan the prophet pointed his finger at the king and said, you're the man. Now, if a man of God, a man after God's own heart, can deceive himself thusly, if Moses can deceive himself to where knowing, knowing the Abrahamic covenant, he who is to be one of the great leaders of all time, doesn't even exercise that covenantal sign in his own home. If Eli, the high priest of God at Shiloh, the time of Samuel's birth, leading the nation of Israel with sons committing adultery by the altar and grabbing the sacrifices, and when told they were evil, said, well, yes, yes, you know, boys, you really shouldn't do that. And Peter, being told by Jesus that he would deny him before the cock crew in the morning, didn't believe it. Do you believe that you and I sitting here but for the grace of God have an enormous potential to deceive ourselves and believe with the cheeriest of confidence that we're impeccably on target while in fact being dead wrong? And you remember we talked a little bit about epistemology at the beginning. How do we know that what we know is knowable? And I quoted for you Proverbs 14:12. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but its end is the way of death. And so our forebears understood that the most crucial of all God's protections against self-deception centered in a careful continuance in the Word of God, both personal reading and the hearing of it preached, and especially and particularly in worship, all the days of our life, in order to prevent us from the terrible trap of inventing a substitute religion as did the Israelites of old when they made the golden calf. And finally, I submit that our Reformation fathers believed that only in Jesus Christ can mankind individually and collectively find hope for his fallen condition. It will not be, be betrayed in the end. To put that another way, only in Jesus Christ can we find what millions of well-intentioned pagans think they can do, and that's to find self-fulfillment, self-advancement, self-correction, self-improvement, self-whatever, on the basis of their own efforts and their own intelligence. And so we're moving then into theological truth that the world hates. 
Jesus said, Beware when all men speak well of you. What does that tell you? What does that tell you about you and I and the world? If you're going to stand for the truth of God, you better get used to the fact the world isn't going to fall all over itself in gushy thrills following you. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't going to be people saved and those who rejoice and praise God, the church rejoicing, but we better get used to the idea if we're going to be faithful in the area of anthropology, there's a cost. So, what are we to do about this? Well, first of all, I submit we must be willing to go back to Scripture and take Scripture seriously about the nature of man. Now, I'm going to take the time to go to two or three texts because I think this is so crucial. And the first one is one we looked at in a somewhat different context, but briefly back to Genesis 8, verse 21. Here the Lord, after the flood, smelling Noah's sacrifice, declares that he will never curse the ground on account of man, for the inclination or intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. So the first thing I want to ask you is, are you willing to concede that we have an inclination for evil that we're born with, no matter how cute or clever we are? That intent or inclination for evil is there. And that's there in covenant children as well as the children of pagans. Now I'd like to push this one a bit further because I believe we get careless on something and that has to do with the way we think. I propose to you that God allows us an enormous amount of liberty and latitude in all areas of thought but one. When it comes to artistic endeavor or literary endeavor, or if you will, things like architecture, construction, design of technological machinery and all sorts of things. The sky's the limit, isn't it? For innovative and imaginative work, not creativity, by the way. And isn't it interesting that God says there's one area you and I are not to speculate in at all. This is the one keep out sign. And that's in the area of theology. In the area of theology. And I submit, theological speculation is one of the ultimate idolatrous evils. Some of you have heard me say this I ask you to bear with me because I believe it was so helpful to me I'm willing to share it much as Tony did the other night last night about that business with the baseball card. But when I went to Reed College as a pre-med major back in the late 50s Reed was a very avant intellectually arrogant place still is as far as that goes uh, in which for instance uh, they bragged about the fact they were one of the first colleges in the country to have a card-carrying communist on the faculty, and they bragged about it in the McCarthy area. So, I mean, you know, you gotta really be radical to think that way. And 
that one of the things they taught us at Reed is you, you, know, you, you reconstitute everything according to your own light. And I had four and a half years of that at Reed. I lost a year with, with illness, basically, and so I ended up taking literally four and a half years of work there. Now, when I came to Westminster, I want to tell you, uh, intellectual pride was just you know, <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and supper for me. And when I had my first systematic theology class with Professor Murray, after getting scholarships at Reed and passing right in the middle of a class, and Reed doesn't give cum laude or magna cum laude or summa cum laude, they don't award them. They say if you can even graduate, you're summa cum laude. Uh, now, I mean, you can just see the palpable you know, mushroom of pride burbling like some horrible growth in a cheap science fiction film. Blup, blup, blup. <laughs> and so people go out of there, you know, with their breasts inflated like the good year blimp, not the good rich blimp. Got careful listeners here. And uh, so I went to, re uh, to Westminster and I had my first, uh, you know, it was, I guess third of the way or midterm exam with John Murray. He gave me an F. F. I want to tell you, I was enraged. <laughs> and I went to Professor Murray. I got an appointment. I went in. I told him 19 reasons under the sun why I thought that was unjust. You know, that dear godly man listened <laughs> to that awful contribution to the history of speech <laughs> that I made. And when, he got, when I got all through, I finally ran out of gas and wind and ideas and complaints and all the rest of them kind of came up for air. And Professor Murray looked at me and whichever eye was the real eye, I never was quite sure. But, uh, anyway, he looked at me with that eye. And, and he said in tones I will never forget that just burned in my heart. He said, Mr. Needham, yes. He said, I do not care at all what you think. <laughs> like, getting an eight millimeter shell in the breast. <laughs> he said, but I care terribly if you know what God thinks. <laughs> hey, that was that revolutionized my life. One sentence from that godly man helped me to see in a way I wouldn't have with probably 25 lectures, 30 textbooks, 40 seminars, and 50 sessions of self-examination that all of that intellectual pride and speculation was wicked, wicked, wicked because I wasn't, hadn't even occurred to me to participate in the discipline of not thinking my thoughts my arrogant, pipsqueak little crumbs of pseudo-intellectual insight, but instead to concentrate on the ideas, the ideas of God. 
the truths of God's Word. And isn't it interesting that we are willing to blithely speculate in areas theological? And that's wicked, 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 because that is the queen of the sciences. That is the area above all else where deductive truth reigns supreme. One of our highest tasks is to then inculcate our thinking with that. And whatever subject is important to God, it ought to be important to us. And God's thought should always take precedence over ours. And so when God tells me that I'm not to speculate, when it comes to things about God, there's a place for just simply obeying. Just simply obeying. And if you don't know with unshakable certainty then I would challenge you before God not to speculate because every heresy that's ever begun has begun as a pious, you know, supposition. Do you know how the whole terrible heresy of Mariolatry began? You know how it began? It began in a monastery in France before the turn of the millennium where some monk had, listen to this, a pious opinion about the mother of Jesus, a pious opinion. And that started that incredible flood of heresy about Mary that today has consumed the Catholic Church along with its other heresies and robbed Christ of his glory. And so we need then to be willing to start picking up and going to Scripture and saying, What saith the Lord? Turn with me, please, to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter chapter 14, 14th Psalm. I'm interested if anybody here has a King James. Anybody got a King James Bible? All right. Would you tell me in the first sentence of Psalm 14 where it begins, the fool of said in his heart. Are there two words in italics? What are the two words in italics? There is. Now, does that mean we're to emphasize them? Is that what the italics mean? It means they're not in the original language. Now, if you have a New American Standard or an NIV, or maybe some other one, is do you have it written with no italics, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God? Hmm? Most Bibles now are printed that way. I submit that's the perpetuation of what was originally, I believe, a well-intentioned translational gaffe, because that's the form of direct address, what we in English would call evocative. And if you take out the words there is, you get a very different meaning. Now, if you read it with there is, it's, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What does that sound like verse 1 is talking about? Atheist, doesn't it? It sounds like a text dealing with atheism. But now let's read it as it is in the original. The fool has said in his heart, no, God, 
What are we talking about? The rebellious. The rebellious. What's the most terrifying designation that God applies to anybody in Scripture? What's the most terrible word of condemnation? The fool, isn't it? And God is saying that when we say to God, No! We are walking on thin, thin ice. Remember a certain housetop in Joppa? And a certain individual is hungry and he falls into a sleep. And he sees a vision. His name's Peter. Remember that? And that vision comes down and it's a sheet of some sort and there's all sorts of animals on it including animals that were ceremonially prohibited under the old covenant administration of the kingdom. Remember that? And God tells Peter, rise and eat. Peter says, yes sir. Is that what he says? No. No, Lord. Now think about that. No, comma, Lord. What an incredible juxtaposition of words that never ought to go together unless answering a question where no is proper, but never, 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 never as an expression of willful disobedience. I then properly need to understand that our hearts are our biggest problem. Now let's go to Jeremiah 17. We were there briefly. And verse 9, The heart is more deceitful than all else, is desperately wicked, who can understand it? Now when we were looking at some epistemological truths, I touched on these, and I think a moment's repetition is important, because I now want to move into this issue. Where do you suppose more than anywhere else we exercise self-deception? Where does self-deception, this is down-to-earth stuff, tend to manifest itself most terribly? Where? Where? Couldn't hear you, I think. In your thought life, I would say that, and then outwardly, with respect to it, especially, not, I'm not saying this is exclusive, but especially one area, Pat, well, I would say the emotions are the vehicle by which it happens. Cam? I would say that sort of tracks with Pat. The affections, if you mean by that, the emotional uh, attractions and so on. Think of this for a minute. I will, I will concede that courtship is the most dishonest period of our lives. <laughs> Ask anybody who's married, and they'll tell you that. But I would submit that the most intense self-deception comes in our, I believe, only area of possibly infinite capacity. I believe we have one area that we never, ever run out of resources, and that's to justify sin. I believe we can endlessly think up new ways to justify old corruptions, but for the grace of God. I believe that when it comes to being defensive, 
we can, without so much as a blush, defend in ourselves what we scathingly will condemn in everybody else. I believe we have the capacity to love in ourselves what we hate in others. And I believe that's where this business of self-deception is so bad. And that's why it's so deadly when it comes to the nature of man. If somebody tells me they enjoy having their sins exposed, my own opinion is they're either a liar or a fool or insane. I don't think any of us enjoy that. But I believe if the grace of God is working within us as we're matured in the faith, we can be thankful for what we don't like. And so let's go over then to Romans chapter 3. Which, of course, is quoting from the psalm we were just at. Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Altogether they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And I ask you today if you believe that. And if you've had a rebellious child, thank you, Lynn. Uh, if you've had a rebellious child, have you ever said something like this? Well, he's basically a good boy. She's basically a good girl. You ever said that? You ever talked like that? You ever heard anybody talk like that? You see how we can maintain absolutely contradictory notions in our head with perfect equanimity? but for God's grace. But now let's push it even further, back to Psalm 51. And by this time you've probably figured I'm saying almost nothing innovative or new. I think some of you have probably figured this out already. This is real basic stuff, see. Psalm 51. Of course, the psalm that David confesses is, is, his, is the expression of his confession on the occasion of being confronted by Nathan. Verse 5. This is the text you ought to highlight, red line, and tab when you're talking to unbelievers or, or nominal Christians. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. There's a great, great foundation text for the fact that we indeed have a sinful nature and it exists at the moment of conception. This is a quick little digression. If you really believe this, this should help make sense why it's so terribly important to believe that Christ was indeed conceived by the Holy Spirit because that enabled him to have a human nature. And if he didn't have a human nature, he couldn't be the recipient of the curse that was against man. And yet he had to have a nature that was sinless, so he couldn't have a nature conceived by ordinary generation. And so those doctrines really matter terribly, don't they? They matter absolutely. So here we are with this dilemma. 
And we then are in a world that says man's basically good and getting better, even though he's basically worse and despair is increasing. That little crumb of dishonesty is still held on too much as a drowning man holds on to a pop bottle hoping it'll keep him up in a raging sea. So what are you and I to do then? Well, first of all, I submit that we have to be willing ourselves to live out what we believe in terms of our speech and our thought life. And there, Eileen, I go back to your point on the thought thing. Are we willing to be non-deceptive by the grace of God in facing the fact of our sinfulness? And you see, isn't it interesting that in America, which is the great land of heresy invention, we probably invented more here than all the rest of the world put together from the dawn of history, that even within the evangelical churches we've been seduced to believe in many instances that once we've confessed our sins at conversion, we become sinless. There's all kinds of churches that teach that. It's called the doctrine of perfectionism. Do you believe as you sit here that you and I need daily to ask God for forgiveness for sins of thought and word and deed? Do you believe that as you sit here this morning? Well, you see, if you believe that, that's going to play out, isn't it, in the way that we behave. It's going to have a tangible expression in such things as how we deal with our children. Remember I talked earlier about the issue of saying I was wrong. If I believe I'm sinless, it's going to be much harder to say I was wrong than if I believe I'm still obligated to mortify the flesh, to put to death the old man, to deny self, and to hate the sin that remaineth in me. Now, because we're going to get into soteriology in the next hour, obviously part of this, in a sense, one entire half of the doctrine of man has to center in the person of Christ because otherwise uh, we leave people without hope. But when you walk out of here this morning, one thing I hope is that if it hasn't been clear before, it will be clear to you this morning that it is impossible to fully and adequately convey the absolute crucial non-negotiable necessity of a Savior like Jesus Christ when you waffle on sin. And as soon as you erode sin, you don't need a Savior who dies on the cross. You don't need a Jesus Christ. You can have any celestial bellboy. And then as the heresy progresses, eventually a time will come when you don't even need that because you're really and truly your own God. I also believe that if you believe the doctrines of, of our nature as set forth in Scripture, that is a powerful protection against the t- temptation to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. I'd like to take you to Luke, to one of the more obscure parables that our Lord spoke. Luke 17. Beginning with verse 5. I've got about, what, four minutes, Lynn? 
And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith! And I suspect most of you would agree, deep in your heart of hearts, you'd like to have more faith. I think that's something, if I may use the word of a previous speaker, we can all resonate to. That's not a bad word, by the way. We can resonate to that. All right. All of us would like to have more faith. So the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you'd say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted, be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, I suspect, if I were to say, in three minutes, we'll all walk outside, and everybody will line up on a row, and we'll pick a tree out in the golf course, and everybody gets the opportunity to say, oak tree, be uprooted and cast into the sea. Want to do it? <laughs> because apparently, according to this, if the tree doesn't get uprooted and cast into the sea... Your faith is smaller than a mustard seed. And then he begins in verse 7 to say something that at first blush seems unrelated. He said, But which of you having a slave plowing or tending tending sheep will say to him when he's come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I've eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? Ooh, how un-American. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you, comma, say, quote, we are unworthy slaves, we have only done that which we ought to have done. Now how on earth is that going to increase our faith? Well, I propose to you what Jesus is saying is this is a call to obedience with a particular frame of mind. The frame of mind of a right attitude and a right assessment of our standing with the Master. That even when we're redeemed, and even when He gives us the grace to obey, we still don't deserve a word of praise. At best, we've only done what He's commanded. And that is so unnatural, that is so contrary to human nature, that is so absolutely repulsive to our own egotistical natures, that when the Spirit of God brings us to that place, that's an evidence of His grace, an evidence of His maturing mercy, and it will be instrumentally used by God to increase our faith, because that's God-centered and not man-centered. In the military, we have been so browbeaten with our responsibility to praise people that now we praise people for just barely doing their job. That's dismissed.